go back through the history of the rosary, you know, a thousand years, you're going to find there are periods when the church sort of wakes up to the fact that they've got a full-blown goddess religion living inside of their patriarchal Christocentric religion. You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 86, The Divine Feminine, a Beacon Series conversation featuring Clark Strand and Perdita Finn, co-authors of The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine Hidden in the Rosary. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. Almost from the very moment of my initial awakening in the summer of 1995, I've had a hunger to learn, and reading was a critical source of nutrients for my ravenous mind. I've read many wonderful books since that day, and while my mind may not be as hungry, it's still making a healthy meal of many wonderful written works. In the full scope of all the works I've read, there are those very special books that are more like profound life events, and I'm sure you understand my meaning. These are the works that become phenomena, and when you turn the last page, your mind makes special note of the time and space in which you absorbed its message. Recently, I completed one such multifaceted work, so layered and rich that I reached out to the authors to see if they would visit with me on Find the Good News. Enter my conversation with Clark Strand and Perdita Finn, co-authors of the book, The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine Hidden in the Rosary. On the surface, this book appears to be about the rosary, and it is about that. But I very quickly learned that while it is about this cherished, predominantly Catholic form of prayer, this inspired work was about so much more. The Way of the Rose, through the rosary, reaches down through the historic ages of humankind and further still into prehistory, sinking to the very formation of the earth on deeper to the creation of the universe. In this dynamic and invigorating conversation, Clark and Perdita graciously share their intimate discoveries as they followed the promptings and messages of the lady, or girl, around the world and through the ages to produce The Way of the Rose, a work which reveals cross-cultural connections of the divine feminine using poetic and prophetic beats unlike any work I've encountered before. What intrigued me most of all about The Way of the Rose and the story of encounter that Clark shares is the sideways nature in which their relationship began. As someone that has been using a rosary as a part of their own prayer life, long before I made my cycle within the organized Catholic Church, it was refreshing to visit with people that have experienced such powerful promptings. An ongoing journey like that of Clark Strand and Perdita Finn longs to be shared or in this instance, cries out across the ages to be born. I enjoyed this conversation with Clark Strand and Perdita Finn. They were so genuine, kind, and open about sharing the sweet aroma of this unfolding work called Way of the Rose. Before you listen to this episode, I encourage you to look for the string that's running through your life or the common links in the chain of your existence that binds one thing to the next. Stop for a moment on the beads that have formed around every sacred moment you've ever experienced. Go gently through them, one by one. Maybe, if you stay in this garland long enough, you'll see the presence of a loving mother somewhere along the way. Now, tune your attention to this good news beacon and press play on a little good news. Wake up this morning. 
way it's going Cause you're laughing in your sleep On the path to your deliverance In a holy wall of light Old news, bad news, fake news Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source. With my Find the Good News Beacon series, I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them. I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. y'all in sort of person. <laughs> no, you got your rosary on. Now I can see. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's so interesting. Uh, y'all's book just hit me like right in the gut. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm sure I'm seeing that in the Facebook group that so many people are connecting to this work. And I had to reach out to y'all and I thought, you know, I'm just going to take a chance. I've, I've talked to other authors on the show before. And it's always uh, been that way. I read the work and I just reach out to them and say, hey, you know, let's have a conversation. And I try to try to talk to people that's something that really impacted me. And I can tell you just from reading that book. Well, let me back up. I say reading it. I listen to the audio book, which I, I just actually ordered the print copy so I can have the physical copy. The audio book was uh, a whole nother experience to me. Huh. It was like a, um, a layered work. I really... I don't know how else to say that, but I'll jump off the cliff. I guess I should do this the proper way and ask you to uh, introduce yourselves to the listeners for those folks that just may not be familiar with your work. Well, uh, I'm Perdita Finn, and this is my husband, Clark Strand. And nine years ago, we would never have imagined that we'd be writing about the divine feminine and the rosary. (laughs) And, And... nor would we have imagined that we'd have thousands of friends from all over the world who were as passionate as we were about reclaiming the indigenous roots of the rosary and devotion to the Great Mother. And it's just been a wild, unexpected, and pretty wonderful journey. Yeah, it really has. I mean, nine years ago, I didn't have a single book on the divine feminine anywhere in my uh, in my vast <laughs> spiritual library. I had, right. you, know, I, I, you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was kind of a professional patriarch. Oh, I see. Yeah, right. All of these patriarchal traditions and and uh, study with all of these, you know, quote learned, you know, spiritual men. <laughs> you know. <laughs> from varying different traditions and you know so there was a you know a blind spot uh as big as half the planet or all the planet that uh, our lady just sort of stepped right into and you know my life totally changed when that happened yeah so for for the folks listening guys we're i'm talking with perdita finn and clark strand they're the authors of the book the way of the rose the radical path of the divine feminine hidden in the rosary uh 
you know, I've read a lot of books. I'm sure like a lot of people, for me, books were like traveling the world. I don't li- I've never had the opportunity to really travel. And I, I live on the Gulf Coast of Louisiana. And so access to a variety of religious and spiritual material and experiences is sort of limited. And so books were always a way for me to travel. Mm-hmm. And I've read books but I've read books that are more like phenomena and I, I kind of c- categorize them that way. And this particular book hit me that way. Yeah, I was like, okay, I'm not just reading a book and I'll tell you what, I'll tell you how I discovered it shortly. I was listening to Rabbi Rami Shapiro's podcast mm-hmm. and I love his podcast. He always talks about things that are just I love the new one. I think conversations on the edge was the one that I had heard it on. Yeah. And so I'm going to be completely transparent. I had I had was really unfamiliar with y'all's work, you know. And when I started listening to y'all talk on his show, I was driving and I thought, man, I I need to scratch the surface on this because the topics y'all were into were just really, honestly, really personal to me. And mm-hmm. uh, so I immediately, before I even finished the podcast, I went and bought the book on audio and started listening to it immediately. Uh-huh. And I was, I remember where I was at when I finished it. And I always take that as a sign that that book stuck because I was, uh, I was sitting, laying under the oak tree in our front yard, which we happened to call mother and our uh-huh. family. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I, I finished your book and I told my wife, I said, you need to read this. It's, it's, uh, there's something special happening with this book. Can I ask you a question? What is your own uh, spiritual religious background? Yeah, so I'm kind of a mutt. A lot of us. (laughs) (laughs) And I I like it that way. I've come, you know, I struggled with being that for a long time, to be quite honest with you. I, um, hmm. So let me just tell that the shortest way possible with with some relevant details, which why it connects to y'all's book for me. Uh, and I don't want to spoil too much, but you you start telling a story, which that let me back up to this book to me is like a it's a it's a book about a book. I don't know if that makes any sense, but the way you tell that story, I almost explained it to someone the other day. I said, well, you have to there's a story in the book about the the uh, the birth of the book, if that makes sense. Yeah. Which is a strange thing because most books are about some other experience. But and and granted, there's just whole spiritual wealth in this book. But I feel like it's a story about the book to a large degree. At least for me, I felt like that was there. So the part about the girl, mm-hmm. which I thought the cherry on top. I won't spoil it again. But in the end of it, what you I talked about the whole publishing experience and some of the fears about that. You know, mm-hmm. putting that out there. I related to that. So much. And the fact that the book closed with that talking about those fears hit me because my own getting back to what you asked, my own spiritual experience happened when I was 20 years old. And I was now I know what it was. It was depression. I was depressed. Mm. I didn't know what to call it, you know, but I was going through this period of time, which I, I my old journals, if I read them, they they use words like I'm dead inside there's no hope. I'm suffering. I don't know what's going on. I don't feel like there's any point. I wasn't suicidal, but it was like a feeling of just complete being lost and empty. And I had an experience that I've been chasing for 25 years with a girl. Huh. And, and I, I remember coming home from that experience. And I remember I told a good friend of mine, 
he said, something's going on with you. What happened? And I said, man, I said, you know, I don't know how to explain this. I said, all I can tell you is I met someone. And so he thought I was talking about I met like a girl that I was attracted to or like, oh, you know how that goes. You know, you fill that empty space with this relationship and you're all on a high. And I said, no, 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 no. And so I begin to try to explain to him what happened. And he was like, hang on a second. So this isn't a real girl. I said, well, I don't know how to explain this. <laughs> and so for 25 years, I would I would either sit on that information out of fear because I didn't know where it was safe to talk about it. And I kept trying to plug it in to other religions in an attempt to understand it, right? So I would practice Buddhism or I would dive into Catholicism or Kabbalah or, you know, Hinduism, any of those things. Well, in the process, you know, it was a great learning experience because I got to connect to all these wonderful traditions around the world. But what I started to discover was that there was these, uh, in which your book, I love that about it, is that you're going, oh, this is a cross-cultural, cross-time Cross geography story of a of the divine feminine showing up to heal and help and nurture and hold and teach and so anyway I tell you that because I guess that sort of answers your question I don't really have a a, a tradition that I can call one hundred percent home. Um, you know what's interesting is you know we've been around the country talking about our book and we started at a certain point asking people in the audience how many are of you are here because you've seen the lady, you've met her in some incontrovertible way, you've heard her, and or you haven't been. Your life has been radically impacted or changed by her. You've experienced yeah. her saving you or changing the course of your life. Right? I mean, one one guy was really interesting in Minneapolis. He described himself. I said, "Why are you here?" Uh, at the book signing, and he said, "Well, I was this angry Buddhist atheist, and one night I was taking out the trash and cleaning it up in my alley." And I found that someone had thrown away a card with a picture of the Virgin Mary on it. And it just seemed wrong. Mm. And he said, I can't put it in the trash. And he said, I took it and I put it in my pocket and I brought it in the house. And I didn't know what to do with it. Yeah. Hmm. Looking at it on the table. And then he said, a few weeks later, I put it on its own table. And then a few weeks after that, I thought, Oh, I better just learn the Hail Mary. And then a few <laughs> weeks after that, he said, I started to say the Hail Mary to her. And he said, and my whole life started to transform. Yeah. And he ended up with an altar with this little image, little card that he found, you know, uh, and, a little postcard or something, you know. And he said, an and he said, you know, I've continued to do it because it works. <laughs> sure. Sure. And, and I think that's the thing is that she shows up in those moments when it looks like we don't have anything, right. whether that's a personal moment of depression or despair, as you experienced, and many people have, many people in our culture are experiencing right now. Oh. Yeah. And she shows up when our whole species is in need yeah. of a mama. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. You I know? connect with that. I do. I mean, I don't even know how to explain that. It was almost like, I guess when I read your book, it was like a refreshment, to be honest with you. All these little old doors just sort of begin to, begin to unlock. I'll give you an example of one of the reasons I love the work is because uh, there was a time period a couple, a few years ago, it was right after my father died. And it was again like a threshing, you know, I mean, I was going through this grief and I, 
I remember having the wherewithal to sort of lean on this idea that, okay, I don't need to, I need to let myself feel this grief, right? I need to kind of get into it. And, you know, in a weird sense, stepping into that grief again, unlocked all these experiences, all this stuff started happening again. And I was drawn into the, toward the Catholic church at that time. And it's interesting because I, I I talked about this with some past guests. I said, you know, it was strange. I said because I would go to these classes and I realized I was getting involved in all this legalism and paperwork and checking all these boxes. And I said, God, that's just not what I came here for. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a cruel way. I just was like, this is not what I'm drawn here for. I'm drawn here for this burning heart that I can't even begin to describe. And that's what I'm drawn to. And I was having these experiences with a woman again. And I can remember how discouraged I got at one point during the process, because I I did have an, an, an encounter in a prayer garden after a dream a night before. And I, I told my wife, I said, it's insane. I said, this happened again. I said, now there's this dream that I'm going, wow, that doesn't feel like a normal dream. And then the next morning at sunrise, there's this experience. So I went to the, the priest and I said, I, I need to share this with you. And what I received, unfortunately, was like a shutdown. It was like, OK, you don't need to worry about that type of stuff. You actually need to be careful. And I was like, so hold on. I was perplexed. <laughs> because, you know what I mean? I mean, I was I was perplexed. I said, this is not what. Why would you want to tell a being to step away from these experiences that draw you into more love and more compassion? And what I guess I come to realize was that it was uh, because it wasn't inside of a container. Yeah. It wasn't controllable. You know, she is controllable. Yeah. And that's the incredible thing about her was, you know, they're always trying to get rid of her where, <laughs> you know, institutions are always trying to suppress her. And, yeah. I, you know, I let's be clear, all of the patriarchal religions, from Buddhism through Christianity, yeah. they all, in, you know, Judaism, they all want to suppress the divine feminine. Mm. And, but she, she's too big, you can't suppress the planet. Mm. Mm. Yeah, right. Okay, that's right. And she just shows up, you know, and that's, that's the thing. Yeah. You know, a, a few years ago, our, our lady, uh, you, you know, as you know, from having read the, uh, the postscript, I guess, or the afterward to The Way of the Rose, you know the story that uh, sure. we tried to publish the first book, uh, Waking Up to the Dark. Oh, which you know, I'm reading, by the way. I'm reading that right now. <laughs> which introduced, you know, the, the girl, the lady. And... Um, when I showed it to my agent, she said, I can't represent this. And so, you know, I said, well, you know, if, if you'll, you know, if you'll let me, I'll just send it directly to editors. So I sent it out to all these editors and told them that our lady, what our lady had told me, which is that one of them would be the right person to publish the book. And of course, you know, Cindy Spiegel and Spiegel and Grau, you know, told me right away, as soon as I met her, I'm the one to do yeah. this. Published it immediately without uh, making any substantial edits to the book, without asking to change it in any way, and has been our champion ever since. She also published *The Way of the Rose*. But uh, in the beginning, I thought maybe I'm supposed to go to like the local bishop. Like I'm not Catholic. Perdita's not Catholic, but right. I didn't 
we didn't have a playbook for this, right? Who expects something like this to happen? So we read about Marian apparitions. And so at some point I asked our lady, I said, am I supposed to go uh, to the local bishop or something? And she said, no, 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 the editors are the bishops now meaning the editors are the arbiters of what is believable. They're the ones who declare something worthy of belief, which is traditionally the you know, the task of the bishops of the cardinals, when people don't pay so much attention to them anymore. Then a few years passed, and one morning she said, just because I told you that the editors uh, are the bishops now, that, don't mean, that doesn't mean there aren't still bishops. So today I want you to go see the highest Franciscan in authority uh, in the Northeast. And then next week, on the same day, I want you to go see the highest Carmelite in authority. So that day I went, I always do as I'm told, even though it's frightening and I don't, you know, I don't know, You just like you said, you don't know how people are gonna respond. So I find this, you know, this very high up Franciscan friar in charge of this big operation. And I tell him the story and he just dumbfounded. And, uh, you know, doesn't, you know, is very kind and everything, but clearly flummoxed that Our Lady would appear to somebody who wasn't Catholic with a message for the world. Mm. And so uh, I went the next week to the National Shrine of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, where the highest Carmelite in authority was and asked to speak to him. I spoke to him, told him the story of the apparition, the first apparition on June 16, 2011, that I uh, I saw a girl with tape over her mouth, which I yeah. pulled yeah. off, and that after that she began to speak and you know uh, began to offer messages about the times that we're entering and how to how to manage them and how to hold on to her. Well, at one point, I'm telling him this story, he keeps interrupting me because he's been trained as an inquisitor. He's been trained at, to grill a person who claims to have an apparition, right? Try sure. to trip him up. So he, he insults our lady, insults me, does all kinds of the standard things that they're taught to do. At one point, he says, well, I don't really get this. You, this girl appears in your house in the middle of the night. And you don't call the cops. Huh. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> so I laughed and I said, Father, you know, would you have called the cops on the Virgin Mary? <laughs> right. Well, and then I'm sure, Clark, I mean, that type of experience having an apparition. And again, I can only speak as humbly as I can as someone who claims to have had experiences yeah. like this. You know the difference, right? It feels different. Y'all talk yeah. about that in the book. Yeah. Clark, one said in the beginning, you know, I, I was the skeptical wife when this all began. <laughs> I served. You know, I've never forgotten uh, this detail when Bernadette Subaru, who was the apparitionist at Lourdes, she was a young peasant girl, and she called, the first person she told about the apparition was her mother and said, you know, I met a lady, uh, um, yes, yeah. you know, and she's really special and her mother slapped her and said snap out of it mm. and you know <laughs> i understand it it's what happens is and i think the thing is when the when the world that's bigger than our belief sphere penetrates yeah it can feel very destabilizing yeah it's like a yeah. needle poking poking you you know it punctures uh, your reality but it's so. amazing how often it's happening to so many people. Yeah. And then ultimately 
how much guidance and love there is in yeah. those experiences if we're not frightened of them. You know, the Virgin Mary has appeared since eight, since she appeared to uh, uh, Catherine Labouret in Paris at Rue de Bac in 1830, which, you know, people usually take as marking the, the modern age of Marian apparitions. She has appeared over 500 times, and those are just the times where the church got involved, right? So we have no idea how many people she has spoken to, how many people whose lives she's changed, how many communities she's taken in hand and inspired people to do, you know, meaningful uh, things. So yeah. we have those 500, but that's an astounding number. That's one thing that I loved about this particular book, and I, I'm not sure exactly how you phrased it, but, you know, your background is, is primarily Buddhism. Yeah, as I understood it. And so for this to come at you, it comes at you kind of sideways, right? You're going, hold on a second. This isn't within the framework of what I've practiced. This isn't in the framework of the way I structure my thinking or even my research. And all of a sudden you get this thing yeah. coming out of left field and you're going, how can I deny this as a, you know, this ex real experience I'm having? You know, it doesn't plug in, you know, that first happened. Clark can tell you he was trained as a Buddhist monk that if you had a kind of visionary experience, one should stare it down. I'll yeah, yeah. I, I was taught as a, as a Zen monk that such experiences were called makio, which means illusion. So, the you know, the received wisdom was if you just stare it down, it'll go away. Well, I looked in this girl's eyes for all of about five seconds and said, you win. <laughs> okay. If, if, if you're unreal, I'm less real than you are. This is the realest thing I've ever experienced in my life. So there was no way. And I think, you know, that was the moment that, that you know, my, you know, my sort of the identity kind of as, you know, I was a Zen monk. I was a Zen teacher. Even for, it's pretty to tell you for years after that, I still kind of thought of myself as an ex-monk, right? Still a big part of my identity. That was the night when it just all went out the window. I said, yeah. this is, reality is so much stranger and more wonderful than, than I ever imagined. Yeah, no, I get that. I One of the things to me that I, and I, maybe this is my own perception, I don't know if this would be the proper way to describe the book, but what I loved about it was it was like a layered approach, and I may have mentioned that earlier, but I felt like the book has is so enjoyable as a read or, and a listen to because of that. It's like part story, which is fascinating, or multiple stories, many pieces to the story, but then it's it's also prayer, it's also prophecy, you know, and so you get this uh, unfolding in each part of the book, and I loved that. It was like the story would lead right into sort of the prof the prophecy, and again, the audiobook, in my opinion. Now, that's your daughter, correct? That's do, do, yes. reads for. Yeah. Yeah. I thought she that was beautiful, just such a beautiful family uh, experiment to some degree. I mean, I would imagine, you know, but it just unfolds like a rose. I mean, well, our lady said to us when we began the book, and we felt quite daunted by it, to be honest, Oren. You know, here we were, two non Catholics writing a book about the rosary. Yeah. And such a book has never been written. There's one other book that's been written like this, filled with interesting information, impossible to read in the 19... It was written in the 1960s by a woman. She was the foremost uh, translator of Kafka and a Jungian analyst. And she just had the sort of similar experience with the rosary that we did, like, oh, 
this is what's at the bottom of religion. Yeah. This was what people have been doing for tens of thousands of right. years. This is kind of the initial spiritual devotion. Right. right. And so, but she'd also kind of been overwhelmed by how do we deconstruct everything that's been done with the rosary to get back to that original experience. And our lady's one advice, piece of advice to us was she said, you're not writing a book. You're writing a river. Mm-hmm. And so I think what you mean is like what we began to see is like there are these streams that were coming in. So we write about we had to write a lot about climate change, which right. we're both very passionate about. Yeah. We had to write a lot about the history of the rosary. We had to write a lot about the history of the patriarchy and the suppression of the divine feminine. There yeah. were so many things we realized right. we kind of had to weave yeah, they together. All, yeah, they all came together. It really was like little streams coming down off mountains and, you know, going into larger streams, which then poured into the river and it became the book. And, uh, you know, we wrote it together and it was it was an incredible experience. I mean, it was like alchemy. You know, we've never fought so intensely over anything in our life. The kids would come downstairs and they would say, stop fighting. And we'd say, we can't stop fighting. If we stop fighting, we stop writing because we would have very passionate feelings about this. And so we would argue back and forth over, sometimes over every sentence of a, of, of a chapter until one of us would say, well, what about this? And then the other would say, oh, that's it. Perfect. And then yeah. we Right. That yeah, you can tell. I, I mean, I love hearing that because that just explains so much about the care that I sensed when I was in the book. I I remember feeling like these words are um, sort of just dripping over my mind. It wasn't like oh, I'm reading this and comprehending this. There was a a real saturation with the with the language, and I was like, wow, this is just. It's it's poetic, but it really um, felt like honey. I think you even said that in the book, if I'm not mistaken. You call it the the honey, oh, not the honeycomb of life, but there's something you said in the book about it being like honey. I wrote it down and I can't find my note on it, but I was like, I wanted to remember that because it did actually feel that way to me. There were so many topics in there that would surprise me. Actually, one of my favorite topics is time, and. Mm-hmm. One of the parts that y'all talked about is the origami nature of time and the the folding in. And I was like, wow, now we're into this great territory for me where I was like, because, you know, these experiences where you stop feeling time on that linear line. That's a beautiful, mystical experience. And y'all were describing that so well in the book. Well, Our Lady said early, early on, one of her first sort of teachings to us was she said that time and space are not linear. She said they're folded over each other so that you're, you know, when you're having moments of deja vu or synchronicity, you're feeling what she calls those paper folds, the sense of of spaces and times layered over each other. And, and, And one of the things Clark and I had been fascinated with long before the apparitions began was this idea of deep time that yes. we have a relationship to. You know, we often think of time as historical time. You know, we date ourselves from the birth of Jesus, or we think that the, you know, pyramids and the Egyptians were very long ago, but that's only four or 5,000 years ago. Yeah. And for our species, that's really quite short. There were tens of thousands of years where we lived quite sustainably and quite joyously as a species. Mm-hmm. And, and those, those, those epochs of time 
are and the wisdom hidden within them is what we really wanted to recover. Yeah, and our, our lady said uh, to us at one point, and this is, um, I, I, you'll know from having read the book, but your listeners may not, that uh, the, the book is basically modeled or structured after a rosary, the 59 beads of a rosary. So there are six Our Father beads in a rosary, and there are 53 Hail Mary beads. And so the Our Father chapters of the book are the longer memoir chapters where we tell the story. And the shorter chapters, the Hail Mary chapters, the 53 of those are, you know, they'll say, they'll explore one of these themes you've mentioned and so forth and so on. And at the end of each one of those shorter chapters is a uh, something Our Lady has said. She's quoted, right? Yeah. Especially when you talk about the words just sort of flowing over you that probably a lot of... <laughs> it's her, not us. It's her. Yeah, like those are the words where you just go, you read what she said, you know, and it's just, it, you know, it just gets in, you know, it just gets under your skin, you know, it gets, gets in. Yeah. It just gets past all of the defenses. It just goes right straight to the heart. And uh, but the last of those sections, you know, where she she speaks those short quotes, she says, I, I have I have come to you at this time in this way, not to speak outside of the Catholic Church, but to speak from before it. Mm, like, yes, wants to speak with a voice that's much, much older than not only the church, Christianity or Christianity or Judaism, but older than religion altogether. She's speaking to us from a place that, that we scarcely, barely even remember as a species when we once lived sustainably on the land and in harmony with other creatures. And I'm happy, I know it, I'm helpless to Sorry for interrupting the conversation, but I have something I need to tell you about. You may or may not know this, but this podcast is produced in the city of Sulphur, Louisiana, one of the sister cities that make up Southwest Louisiana. All of my childhood memories are wrapped up in the city of Sulphur. It's my home, and it's been a good home for most of my life. There is a growing diversity of unique businesses, services, and events in Sulphur, each with a rich and colorful story to tell about their particular place in this little jewel on the west side of the Calcasieu River. My mission is to promote good news, to put a positive signal out in the world. That's why my team at Parker Brand Creative Services has created the new brand, Sulphur Today. Here's how it works. Post your Sulphur event, service, photos, videos, or information using the hashtag Sulphur Today. That's it. My team and I will scan and curate those posts through the social media platforms we've put in place. Before you make your post, just type hashtag. That's a pound sign for the folks that don't know what a hashtag is and the words sulfur today with no space my team at parker brand is monitoring this tag right now and they're ready to create positive digital curb appeal for our city by sharing all the very best sulfur has to offer through the sulfur today social media pages as the sulfur today project grows we will be scheduling interviews and video sessions with businesses events and services so they can tell their story of sulfur today in a series of ongoing micro documentaries Look for the eye-catching Sulphur Today sign when you're out and about. And be ready, we may be stopping by to visit you for a photo op. And don't forget to stop by the Parker Brand Creative Services Studio in Sulphur to grab a Sulphur Today decal for your vehicle or business. 
We want people visiting our area to know that they can find all the wonderful things we have to offer with ease and be a part of our history by utilizing the Sulphur Today pages or by searching the Sulphur Today hashtag. Do you want to help us tell the story of Sulphur Today? Here's what I need you to do right now. Visit and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash sulfur today. And be sure to share positive sulfur information and post often using the hashtag sulfur today. Now, back to find the good news. Yeah, that's something that I think gets missed a lot, and I love that this book cut into that territory is that sort of primordial spirituality, and it's at the base of everything, right? I mean, that was—and I think y'all talked about that. Perhaps the word column was used to to explain this column that everything is sort of— supported upon you know and I, I do have this conversation with with you know privately with friends and and maybe other people too but that you know when you look at the earth and the moon you just we just simply accept it and the mystery in our minds is gone and because we can disregard it we don't think of the as you say the primordial spirituality that is literally supporting these things in unison with each other we call that science Right. And we want to throw it out the window. But that's that's an incredible thing. And that's not just the forces of nature alone. And we can separate it from this primordial spirituality. This book gets into that territory. It's all bonded together. It's all unified in that way. It is. And and, you know, and I think she. We here's the thing. Our scientists are telling us nothing different than what the lady has been saying in all of her apparitions. Hard times are coming. She's the one thing that she says that's different is she says, I've done this before. I've gotten you through it before. I'm going to get you through it again. There have been, you know, 70,000 years ago, Mount Toba erupted and plunged the entire planet into climate catastrophe. Only small pockets of people survived around the world. What did people do? They made beads. Mm -hmm. They needed Mm -hmm. something to hold on to. They needed to hold on to their mama, and she guided them through it. Yeah. Yeah. And there have been ice ages. Mm. And what did people do? They made goddess figurines and made beads. Mm. (laughs) She got them through it. And she showed them where to stay warm and how to find food. And we have we have become very dependent on our own power. And, you know, sometimes Clark and I say we don't look to a higher power. We look to lower power. Yeah. Earth. Yeah. The higher power is the moon, too. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that she's all around us. And. Yes. We've made a mess of things, but she knows how to. She does. You know, I'll I'll share something with you that isn't in the book, uh, but it's an experience I had fairly early on with Our Lady. She would speak and she would say things that, as Perdita describes in the book, were really orphic. You know, they were prophetic, as you that's the word you've used, and uh, and very wise. Sometimes they would be disturbing, but they were never only disturbing. They would also be equally comforting, right? She'll say things like, your world has come to an end. And then she'll follow that by saying, but mine has just begun. And if you will take my hand, I will lead you there, right? So that's very consoling. Well, I was, we were in the midst of, of trying to, you know, figure out really who she was. I mean, we knew she was the Virgin Mary, but she was obviously so much older 
than that, even though her appearance was very young. And so we're trying to figure out, well, how old is she? You know, how old are we? How long is this relationship? And uh, one night uh, she she showed me, in answer to that question, a series of, you know, changes that our species have gone through. Like at one point she says, you've lost worlds and fallen into words. Mm. And then she said, let me show you something. And the only thing I can describe it is, is being a very, very small creature, like Lucy, the Australopithecus, right? Maybe about that size, or actually, you know, in this vision, or this memory, she was like Lucy. She was that big. I was just a little, she called me her little critter. (laughs) And I was this tiny little thing, much smaller even than she was, as small as she was. And we were standing, I had no words. I didn't think words were even possible then, but we could still communicate with one another. And uh, I was, we were standing in front of a vast desert. And I remember feeling something just like bottomless terror because we had to cross this desert and I didn't think there was any way we could possibly survive. And then her voice spoke within me and she said, don't worry because I know where the water is. Interesting. That's fascinating. Kind of a metaphor for all of the subsequent experiences we've had and the things she's shown us about the trials that are coming. Like It's like we look at the future with climate change and species extinction, and it's like that little critter, you know, helpless little critter with his mother at the edge of this, of this enormous, impossible journey, wondering how are we possibly going to make it through this? Yeah, that is fascinating. I, I'm just, my mind is... flowing with so much thought on this. I have something I have to share with you. I mean, it's one of your specific details. So I told you about that that thing I tried to share with the priest, and it kind of got shut down. So I kept it to myself. But I I wrote this in my journal because it was so powerful. And I thought this dream tonight was one of these ones where it just was different. There wasn't – it didn't feel like a dream, first of all, but it was filled with high, high symbols. I always think of them that way. It's like these are high archetypes or high icons in them. But in that, in something you just said, I mean, it just connects. I remember there was a woman and we were standing in this in the grass and she was away from me, but she was on all black and she was so sad. I mean, her face, it was like, look, like she'd been crying and crying and crying. And it was like she was mourning, you know, and uh I tried to get close to her, and as I saw her face come out of her veil, I started to feel like she was turning into a giant in front of me. And I remember that was a weird feeling. I was like, she's getting really big. But then she reaches down, and I'm thinking – I got scared. I was like, this giant – morning woman is going to grab me. And so she grabs me, but when she goes to pull – my feet were stuck to the ground. I remember feeling like I, she was going to rip my feet off. But as she, as she does, my feet finally rip from the ground, and she holds me up. And, and like you said about the desert, it wasn't a desert, but it was like a sea of grass. Mm-hmm. And she starts showing me all these directions in every direction, and I start seeing all these Flowers, roses, daisies, every flower, more than I'd ever could imagine, started popping up all over the place. And then I look and I can see that my feet were like the roots of a flower. And so I was like, oh, I I realized I'm not – 
she's not a giant. I'm very, very tiny and small. And I'm just one person that she is plucking just for a moment all across the world to show. What Oh, it just reminds me of what you're saying and it helps me honestly validate because I, I really do. I struggle with, okay, am I being too imaginative here? Am I just do I have this hyper imagination <laughs> and I'm making more out of this? But you know, you just wonder because it leaves you with an imprint that there's some value there beyond one of our in things our institutions have done, just like Zen taught people, you know, it's an illusion, block it out and yeah, stare it down, like you said. Until it, Institutional yeah. authority has not wanted to cultivate our imaginations. It's wanted to cultivate our obedience. And imagination is the foil of obedience. And and, and something that's even deeper than ima- imagination, which is intuitive visionary states like this that, that make use of the imagination or the capacity for visualization, yeah. right? Just as, as you experience in dreams. Because I think it's... It's not just these these experiences are, are real. You know, when we say imagination, a lot of people jump to the conclusion that means not real, right? This made up. But we experience uh, the, 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 the wisdom of the lady and of the earth in this way. We have a slogan that we use um, on Way of the Rose uh, called ecology, not theology. And what we do is we we read, we'll read like texts like the Bhagavad Gita or the Bible or the Lotus Sutra or the Quran or the Talmud or the, you know, or whatever, right? But we read them for their ecological teachings and their ecological truths. And once we do that, it opens us up to, a, I think, a dimension of, of spiritual wisdom that's much older than, than uh, this, you know, our our institutional religious authorities are willing to acknowledge an experience like that is just you're just going back to formula like you're just being <laughs> given you're being given the scripture of the world like you're being taught something you know if you were a shaman you know six seven eight thousand twelve thousand years ago you know you would take that and then use that as guidance for your people Right. No, that's exactly right. I mean, that's interesting you bring that word shaman up because it does keep coming up in a lot of these dialogues I'm having. And, you know, there's on some level it's been sort of culturally appropriated by the promotion machine as like a sellable point. It's like, oh, it's shamanic. And I guess gets at some point it was sort of blanketed with this new age movement. Right. right. And, you know, I was on the I was in that I was in that world 25 years ago. And I remember the new age, the 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 new age movement, you know, or whatever that was called, but it was like, everything was labeled new age. And that was a bad thing. Well, I'm, you know, now I'm, I'm over two decades out of that and I'm going, okay, that, that movement, it's not, it's, you can't do that anymore. These things that people were throwing into new age, they're actually old and ancient. And I'm like, it was just a way to devalue it or to, yeah. oh, maybe that's not the right word. It was a way to just so, oh, that's that's silliness. You need to do this structure this, thing. Uh, it was dismissive. You know, one of dismissive, the things yeah. we discovered and was so interesting when we started reading about the rosary was it emerges in medieval Europe in the 11th and 12th century. And the people living in these villages, one of the things that's really fascinating to think about is they did not live in a literate culture. Nobody knew how to read. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. The priests didn't know how to read. The kings didn't know how to read. The lords didn't. Nobody read. Like one or two. Monk, monks and nuns. One or a couple of monks and nuns. But nobody. Clerks. Clerks could read. And so you have these people living in these villages, and they've done DNA tests, and people have been living in these villages for 8,000 years. 
So they have accumulated traditional wisdom that they've been passing down. And it's a it's the wisdom they need about the land yeah. and the earth and the cycles of the earth to survive yeah. and to yeah. love and to find joy. And so Christianity comes in and says, well, you can't honor the great mother anymore. And they say, okay, but we can call her Mary, right? You know? <laughs> and, oh, sure. You know, uh, and, and we'll put a statue of her at the tree we used to worship. And so they just appropriated this no. these new terminology to what they've been doing for thousands of years. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, when I first— you know, tried to figure out whatever happened. I mean, that's all I could say. It was just exploratory. I was like, I'm trying to figure this out. You know, I, well, Christianity was one of the first religions I went to to go, okay, well, that's a religion, that's spiritual. Let me go read. And so luckily for me, I the first book I opened up in the Bible as an adult to read was Ecclesiastes. Well, I go into Ecclesiastes and I'm like, holy cow, there is a lot of amazing earth. It was earth wisdom. It was cycles and the return and things moving around. You know, everything has a day and it's time. And I was like, okay, that's amazing. But I go and I then start reading the words of Jesus and I go, oh, well, Jesus, he's talking about this stuff too. Don't store up in barns for yourself and look at the birds. And, you know, he used tons of nature analogies to try to convey something. I think our daughter was once asked by uh, an ex-boyfriend's parents, they said, you know, do you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior when they first met her? And she said, well— Very, very conservative Catholics. She said, yeah. not really. She said, I'm more of a kind interested in the magic shamanic rabbi Jesus. <laughs> For sure. I mean, I would say that's where I'm at, too. Yeah. Yeah. Is, yeah. you know, and like you said, I people sometimes balk at saying the Our Father and the Hail Mary, like, I don't want to do that patriarchal prayer. And I say that patriarchal prayer is trying to get you to be a hunter-gatherer again. Yeah, give us this day our daily bread. Don't don't store up surpluses, right? Don't hold grudges. Live simply on the land in small bands of people and wander Trust about. Trust the land to feed you. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I'd like to talk about the actual actually actual saying of the rosary for a minute now that we're talking about the specific prayers. Sure. And I'll I'll share an ex- a quick experience with you guys. Um when I was in that Catholic world, which I was about a two-year, maybe three-year time period, uh, I I fell in love with the rosary. Actually, what had, backing up just shortly, what drew me in, drew me into the Catholic Church was the Divine Mercy. I had had a, a very powerful experience with that. I didn't know who Saint Faustina was. Uh-huh. I know what was going on, and some things just kept happening. And I said, "What is this?" Some synchronicities occurred, and I made the connections. Well, you know, that connection drew me partly drew me into the church. But again, I've watched the divine mercy be appropriated for other purposes as well. But there's this mystical message, right? That's so much bigger and boundless. Anyway, I uh, I fell in love with the rosary through the chaplet. I would say that. Yeah. So I would go and I said, well, I'm going to start going to rosary prayer groups. You know, in the morning before mass and. I had an I had just an observation that bothered me cuz I would like to I like to go in the prayer garden and just sink into the rosary like like it was entering a chapel all itself. Yeah. yeah. That's the way that people described it. They said it was ladies, entering the the ladies mystical enclosed garden. Yeah. Yeah, you're in a chamber all 
Yeah. But I would go into the pre-rosary before the mass. And uh, and again, I'm, I don't want to say this like I'm making fun because I'm not. I mean, everybody believes sometimes what they've been taught to believe. But I would go in and it would, you know, it would just be very quick and we go fast, fast, fast. And I left and told my wife, I said, I just can't do that. I feel yeah. like I'm I'm actually being disrespectful by just counting these things off. Well, another gentleman told me we were kind of having that conversation. He said, oh, he said, well, if you're going to a mass that has a lot of older people mm-hmm. and they've been born and raised Catholic, he said that they're – and he said, again, it may not be that way for everybody. He said, but a lot of that is about gaining indulgences. Right. You know, for every one you say, you're getting time off of your purgatory sentence. Right. And so they're trying to get as many – I had never put that together, and I said, yeah. that sounds yeah. like sticking quarters in an arcade machine. <laughs> I don't want to say the rosary that way. It, it's a way of, it's a way of uh, you know, controlling the rosary and what people do with it to quantify it, to attach it to something that the church controls. The church controls how many, you know, how, much of a, uh, how many indulgences are associated with a particular spiritual practice like the rosary or the Franciscan crown rosary or whatever. And, uh, you know, it becomes a way of, of, of controlling it. So, you know, that's what you were sensing, I think. One of the yeah. things that's really interesting that we discovered, and I will just, I'm will just i just going to speak up for the little old ladies, though, just for yeah. one moment. Because <laughs> Please do. <laughs> I love those a little ladies. A word on their behalf. <laughs> a word on their behalf. <laughs> um, is that there is the, the rosary, the Hail Mary is a mantra. It's a mantric practice. Right. And no matter whether you're in Tibet or you're in India or you're in the back of a church with some little old lady saying the rosary, that mantric practice becomes, the word in Tibetan for mantra is is purring. Yeah, And it purr. becomes a deep purr yeah, in your body. Yeah. And sometimes, I think one of the things, we have a slogan at Way the Rose, make it work for you. Yeah. Some people love to say it real slow. And some people just let the syllables become a purr. Yeah. And... But it used to be that the rosary, when it was first emerging, was part of it was to pray for the dead and to pray with the dead. And a lot of psychics pray the rosary. And I've talked to a lot of them about that. And they say that the rosary helps them go back and forth between the veil. Yeah. And a lot of people who pray the rosary find the portal opening, dreams Mm -hmm. getting more vivid. Yeah. Visitations. And so... The church got scared of the witchy stuff. Yeah. So I mean, indulgences. It, it, it routinely, let, let's let's back up a little bit. The church has routinely gotten frightened of the witchy stuff and tried to rein the rosary in. If you go back through the history of the rosary, you know, a thousand years, you're going to find that there are periods when the church sort of wakes up to the fact that they've got a full-blown goddess religion <laughs> living inside of their patriarchal Christocentric religion. And every time they wake up to that, you know, after they're fine with it until around the, about the time of the Reformation. And after that, they wake up to it every hundred years or so and they go, holy crap, we've got this thing going on here. We've got all these little old ladies at the back of the church, right before Vatican II, there are all these little old ladies, you know, at the back of the church, basically practicing their own religion, right? Yeah. And they wake up to that and they go, we got to rein this stuff in. And so they will then come up with, 
They put the creed. They attach the creed to the rosary. You can't say the rosary unless you say the creed. That was the church's way of suppressing it. Didn't used to have a creed. A lot of times people say the litany of Loretta, which was a a series of of tributes to the Virgin Mary. And I'm happy. I know it. I hate to pause the program, but I want to ask you something. Did you know that you can help me and my team at Parker Brand Creative Services grow the Find the Good News signal? For less than a fancy cup of coffee, you can become an Early Risers Club patron on our Patreon page. What's Patreon? Well, it's a way for creators to fund their projects by pooling support from those really passionate people that believe in what they're doing. Do you believe in what we're doing with Find the Good News? I hope you do. We believe that there's already enough negative news in the world, even right here at home, and that good people doing good works deserve a platform to speak from too. That's why we created Find the Good News, and we believe in that simple mission. Maybe you believe in it too. If you do believe in finding and sharing good news, then head over to our Patreon page right now or check out the link in the show description. For a commitment of $3.33 a month, you can join the Early Risers Club of Find the Good News Patreon supporters and get access to the B-Sides, a patrons-only podcast with the crew behind Find the Good News, Parker Brand Creative Services. Each time we level up, the Patreon rewards will get bigger. If you're tired of old news, bad news, and fake news, help support Find the Good News at patreon.com slash news. That's patreon.com slash find the good news now back to the episode so vatican ii which we think of as a sort of progressive movement in the church was really an attempt to protestantize the church which really means to get rid of mary yeah and so in the mass used to end with the hail holy queen that was removed yeah statues were sidelined yeah. a lot of the saints were removed yeah. um and the rosary became less about personal devotion and more about we're politics. Gonna, politics. Right. We're going to pray the rosary to end communism. We're going to pray the rosary right. to end abortion. Right. It's not about right. your personal relationship with Mary yeah. anymore. Yeah. Well, it's pray interesting. Family rosary as a way of, of you know circling the the cultural wagons around the Catholic Church so that it can't be uh, influenced by secular uh, law or secular trends. Well, in our community here, I live on the Gulf Coast. It's highly conservative down here, and and there's a big push, a traditionalist push in the Catholic Church. And, you know, I love the rosary. I love praying. I love, and I love praying other types of prayers, you know, on just a mala or something as well. But when I sink into the rosary, I, I do. I feel like I'm I'm falling in love, and it's something about the dead too. Uh, I, there's a connection yeah. there. Huge but connection. in our community, they stand on the corner. Like my 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 teenage son, he's he's gay, and they'll stand on the corner holding pictures of the Divine Mercy on these signs, and and it's like you know praying against gay marriage and all this stuff. And I'm it's uh, painful to watch it be okay. used, as you said, like a circling of the wagons around. Issues and topics and conservative, values. conservative Catholic values, politically conservative. Well, and it's interesting because there's so many stories in the Middle Ages. The most, the most popular like fairy tale in the Middle Ages. It's told in every country in different versions. Concerns someone having an encounter with Saint Peter and getting in trouble with him for breaking some rule they shouldn't have been broken. And Peter saying, "That's it. You're never getting into heaven." Right. And then walking away feeling despondent and the Virgin Mary saying, come over here, 
it's easy to get in to heaven. Yeah. I let everybody in. I let everybody in. There's a window in the back that I just leave open. Right? You, <laughs> you can know? just come yeah. and go as you please. I don't leave anybody right. out. Yeah. Nobody yeah. gets out. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and it's amazing. Clark and I went back and read these stories from like the 12th and 11th century. And they're filled with people who feel like they should be left out for one reason or another. Yeah. And feel that well, society fear, is leaving out. They, they fear being left out and they fear the punishments and prescriptions of the church that they've committed some unpardonable sin or they've been cursed or whatever. And in each of these miracle stories, Our Lady soothes their fears, heals them, delivers them, saves them. There's even one where a woman is um, a queen is accused of having an abortion. And honestly, it's not entirely clear from the story whether she she may have. We don't know. And she is uh, taken and thrown off of a bridge, weighted down with stones. You know, they they, uh, throw her into into the river. And she... She prays the Hail Mary, prays her Aves on the way down the river. She's praying to, to the lady, and specifically to the black virgin of, of Rocamador. And the lady delivers her. She washes up unhurt down, down on the shore. And everybody goes, oh, we made a mistake. The virgin saved her. She must, she must be just fine, right? And so yeah. there's, so, there's, there's tons, tons of stories like that. And, and, it's, and it's what we know about mothers. They, right. You know, we yeah. love her. No matter what. She's a lot less concerned with rules and more concerned with people. You know, I I love this, honestly, so much. And your book, again, it freed so much. It it put – I had this little meditation I've had for a while where – you know, the mass is taking place inside of the church, but off in the woods and the thicket and the thorns, off the beaten path, there's a table set over there for all the people that don't fit into the rules, you know? And that table is set and it's adorned. <laughs> yeah, we have a whole Facebook group. To, to, to yeah, I mean, it's incredible the way it's blossomed. We're a wild forest garden, and the thing about the forest, I always say, in that thicket, there's so many different kinds of beings. There's not one way to be. Yeah. Mm. You know, there are trees, there are bushes, there are birds, there are yeah. mo- mosses and mushrooms and yeah. beetles yeah. and big animals and little animals. Yeah. And there's so many different ways yeah. to be. And there's not one way to love. There's not one way to appear. There's yeah. And the whole forest is dispendent upon that wild that, diversity. That diversity. You know, we have people yeah. coming into our uh, Way of the Rose Facebook group, you know, from all over the world and from every imaginable background. But we also have, like, you know, Catholics in recovery, you know, or Catholics who, you know, are just a little freaked out by the state of the world and are not having their, you know, needs met by the church or whatever, or even, you know, victims of priestly abuse that have nowhere else to turn. And they come to us, and sometimes they'll come in and they'll experience a, a brief moment of, like, culture shock. They come into our group, and we've got Buddhists praying the rosary, right? Yeah. And Indians, and just like everybody. And devoted, Jewish people and Hindus. Devoted, and- you know, following our motto of praying to the lady by whatever name you want to call her. And we, we often find ourselves having to sort of, you know— explain what it is we're doing. I mean, it's sort of hard. It's so new. There hasn't ever been anything like it. So it's sort of hard to describe. But at one point, one of us said to somebody on Way of the Rose, and it found its way into the book, oh, I see your confusion. Yeah. This isn't religion. This is permaculture. Interesting. 
This is permaculture. In, in this isn't theology. This is ecology. This is life, right? This is the raw right. stuff of life. These people you see around you are the stuff of life. Each of them brings something different and contributes something. And in a healthy forest, they each have a place and nobody, you know, nobody is privileged over anybody else. We have no leaders, right? We don't really need any leaders. We just need spiritual friends. Yeah. Y'all describe that in the book, actually, right? Towards the end, you talk about the groups and, and your your own rosary gatherings. And I was fascinated by that structure. I, I actually was drawn to it. I thought, how are they accomplishing this? Because I, I, I personally seek those types of gatherings in my life. You know, we talk about this a lot about um, having to step out front, right? I mean, you want to do a good thing in the world. I mean, kind of getting back to the point of this show is about people who are doing good works in the world. And yet, if you want to be, you want to do the good work, but you just want to step, a, you want to step aside. You don't want to be out front, but right. there's this part of it that requires that to step out front and to lead to some degree. But listening to y'all describe your group, if y'all could talk about that a little bit, even that would be really fascinating. I think. Well, what we said is circles of friendship rather than hierarchies of power. Yeah. And you know, in the, in the pulpit to pew model of religion. Mm. There's somebody in charge who's telling you what to think, do, weeding that garden, right? Who's in, who's out, how much you have to donate to the building fund. And believe me, we've been there. And in the Buddhist church, yeah, the Episcopal church, yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but what, we, what Clark and I got fascinated years ago, long before the lady showed up, is what would collaborative models, non-hierarchical models of spiritual fellowship look like. And the most interesting model we found was? Well, we found uh, modern models, we found two models. One were Paleolithic hunter-gatherers in the past. I'll say a bit about that in a moment. The other one was the modern movement was AA, 12-step spirituality. Okay. It's a group that is modeled around what uh, sociologists call reverse dominance hierarchies. We all know what dominance hierarchies are because we live under dominance hierarchies in every country around the world now where there are powerful institutions and powerful people that, you know, it, that basically rule from above, administering, you know, administering rewards and punishments, right? That's a dominance hierarchy. A reverse dominance hierarchy is where a group, usually a fairly small group, about the size of an AA meeting or an ancient hunter-gatherer community, where the group functions to prevent any one, one single person from hijacking the group. <laughs> and the group right. is structured in such a way so that nobody seizes power and the group is able to govern itself according to its kind of own natural um, intelligence. Had a fascinating conversation with a friend of Perdita's family who's a very, very famous um, anthropologist. And he was he and his wife were some of the first people to study the Kung tribe, right? And they they were studying modern hunter-gatherers. And I, I asked him, I said, well, what was what would puzzle you the most? Like, what was one of your more, more interesting experiences? And he told the story about when he first started to follow the Kung around on their on their peregrinations as they would wander from place to place. He could never figure out who was in charge. He had this very dominance hierarchy sort of, he needed to know, like he's an anthropologist, okay, who's in charge here? How do I, how do I describe what I'm looking at, right? And so he noticed that that you know he would identify a leader, and then like 
10 miles later, they would like cross a stream and suddenly instead of a, you know, a 65 year old man, there would be a 13 year old girl in charge. Interesting. And he, so he asked them, well, so what's going on here? And they, they took a long time to even explain the question to them, right? They couldn't understand it. And then they said, oh, yes, yes, she knows the water and the plants in this area. So naturally, she's the person we follow now, right? Right, right. So in our group, we have, you know, it's not like, it's not, it's not like there's this flat textualist terrain where there's a sort of a forced, you know, uniformity or conformity or anything like that. Each person has something special that they bring. And when the circumstances are right, that person will step to the front, right? And yeah. will offer some inspiration or leadership. In our group, Leadership is mostly just inspiration. Like a person inspires other people's to, people to pray, to reach for their heart's desire, to take risks that they need to take, to courageously stand against some injustice if called to yeah. do something, right? So leadership yeah. is mostly inspirational rather than dominance. And one of the things we protected ourselves, we say no priests or priestesses and no property. Because that's yeah. where everybody gets in trouble. You know, Clark had been the editor of a Buddhist magazine in America, and we'd seen one institution after another, the same... Same scandals. Over the same yeah. scandals. Sex and money, sex and money, sex and money. Just, just like the Catholic Church. There's no yeah. different. Right. It's just, it's just baked into the, into the structure of religion itself. Anytime you have those dominant hierarchies and you start to accumulate property, you end up with the same kinds of problems. And yeah, I, you see that in everything, government, I mean, you name it, school systems, right. I mean, yeah. Everything. And, and so, we, so we've been fascinated. So our groups, anybody can start away in the Rose group. Yeah. Get a ah, wow. friends together. Um, anybody can start a phone meeting. We have lots of phone meetings. We have lots of Zoom meetings. We've had people just like at 12-step meetings, their first meeting, they're running it. <laughs> <laughs> right, we have like a meeting script, right? So if you decide you want to run a I mean, now there are a lot of phone and Zoom meetings because everybody's at home, right? So, you right. know, normally we have face-to-face -face meetings in, in, in certain towns and cities around uh, the country and in, in, uh, in England and, and in points overseas where people could go, but now most of it's online. So you, you, that actually creates wonderful opportunities for people. Somebody will join our group and they'll say, wow, I'd really love to have my own group, you know, like that I could count on going to every week. We say, great, start one. They say, well, I don't know what to do. They say, do you have a rosary? Do you have a yeah. rosary? Here's the meeting script and the call-in number. We yeah. were a wonderful meeting. We popped in. We try to get to as many different meetings as we can. And and there was a woman on a Zoom meeting. She'd never prayed the rosary before, didn't know the Hail Mary, and she was leading the meeting yeah. and leading the rosary. And people were well, you and know, people supporting her and doing and that. helping her. If she'd forget the words, somebody would, would help her sort of step in and help her and recite it was the so words. Very, beautiful. very beautiful. And the thing was, her devotion... And her need for this, to be able to do this, was was a gift to, to everybody, everybody else who was there. Yeah. You know what I mean? It was like her yeah. halting, devoted, heartbroken prayer was like this just yeah. gift. Oh, my gosh. Another one of our slogans is no rosary police. Right? <laughs> no, oh, I love no that. I mean, that's the truth. Yeah, so nobody's gonna, you know, nobody's standing off to the side with a ruler to whack your knuckles if you hit a wrong note, you know, 
we we back for the very early days when we were just getting started with like phone meetings and things like things like that. We had one phone meeting here in Woodstock for our local uh, group that decided they wanted to meet more often, but we couldn't get you know rent the room we were using for another face to face meeting. So we had a phone meeting, and. Uh, uh, somebody, you know, was like said they would leave, volunteer to leave the meeting that morning, and she messed up the rosary every way it could be messed up. She <laughs> dropped prayers. <laughs> she got the mysteries wrong. She forgot to say certain prayers and stuff like that. And after it was over, I said very sarcastically to Perdita, "Well, it's a good thing ex there are ex-Zen monk here. Ex-Zen monk. I was the head monk, the Zen monastery, <laughs> like the person who makes sure all the trains run on time and the bells are rung at the proper time, and nobody moves when they're meditating, right? So I said, it's a good thing there are no rosary police, right? And then Perdita said, that's right, there are no rosary police, and she turned it into a slogan. <laughs> so, so really, I love it. But here's the here's here's the punchline. After that, before that, we had always had trouble getting someone other than me and Perdita to lead the meeting. After that meeting, suddenly everybody decided, well, I can do that, right? If yeah. you can make a mistake, then I'm I'll lead a meeting. Sure, if I can, if I, if I don't have to worry about doing it perfectly the first time out, I'll do it. Suddenly, we we had more people than 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 we needed. Well, I mean, it's like a seed, right? I mean, I, I keep I used to have this thought when I was in the Catholic Church, and then I would look around, you know, at different places where the mass maybe had blossomed in another part of the world, and you'd see I'll give you the my, my favorite example is Black Elk. You know, Black Elk was a Catholic, but their mass has feathers and drums and they're using sage. It's not, it's like this, it's like somebody took the mass, planted it in the ground in that world and it grew right. and it, and it pulled all these beautiful elements together. Beautiful. If you plant the rosary in someone's life as a seed and let it grow in that life, you're going to get another beautiful blossoming with all these beautiful that, elements. Yeah. We love watching that happen. That's our principal joy in life. I mean, one of the things I'm sure you've seen if you, since you've been on the Facebook group is people love posting the rosaries they're making. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And no two no alike. And I mean, the art and their just, altars and their, yeah. it, you know, when the lady shows up, art happens too, like that imaginative yeah. and realm. storytelling. And, yeah. yeah. The unicorn tapestries happen. The tarot card happens. Yes, yeah. no, it's true. Yeah, of that, that culture, that culture of the rosary. Yeah. Well, and it reminds me a little bit of Buddhism, to be honest. Like Tibetan Buddhism, with all the different, uh, you know, the way the Buddhas are. I have this deck, in fact, that I love to look at. I'll draw one every day and kind of look at that particular Buddha and, and go, oh. You know, someone who doesn't know what they're looking at will go, oh, that's that's a that's the Buddha. But if you look at the details, the color, the symbols yeah. that are in there, you know, there's that richness. And I look at the lady the same way. It's like she in art appears with all this beautiful stuff around her. In fact, you've been seeing, I'm sure, all these paintings of her for a lot of social justice issues yeah. these days. And you're going, wow, that's a powerful, impactful image. Yeah. Well, the thing about Tibetan Buddhism is that it too is Buddhism got grafted onto the local indigenous religion. Yeah, yeah that's right. And Catholicism yeah. got grafted onto the local that's indigenous right. religion. Right. And so what you still feel are those deep, old pagan roots. One of, right. one of, one of our favorite uh, uh, manifestations of this is that when, uh, you know, 
when Catholic priests arrived in South America, right, the, the, the Mesoamerican genocide happened, there were just the terrible things that happened, but as things began to normalize a bit, and the indigenous people began to embrace Catholicism, they embraced a version of Catholicism, like you said, that in, in, interpolated and incorporated a lot of their own native religion. And one of them was that their figure, their way of understanding the Virgin Mary was as Pachamama, who is ah. this goddess that they believed uh, inhabited the mountain. And so when they were they were very talented artists uh, in some of some of these. Peru, you're thinking Peru. of the Peruvian. Yeah, the Peruvian. The Peruvians were very talented artists. They had a long tradition of art, and so the the, the conquistadors and the you know the various priests came in and they said, well, we we're going to monetize this. We're going to have them paint the Virgin Mary and send it back to Europe and make a lot of money. All right. So the, these people said, oh, we'll paint the Virgin Mary for you. They painted her inside of the mountain with a little face at the top of the mountain. Wow. And the priest, well, that's because for her, she, she was Pachamama. The yeah. priest said, well, okay, it's not quite right. Our lady isn't a mountain. They said, oh, okay, okay. So we'll, we, we'll tweak it a little bit. So they then started to paint her with a bell-shaped gown. Interesting. Right, like a triangle. Yeah, He's still a mountain, and then you see the head poking out the top of this bell-shaped gown. The rest of her of her body is hidden because it's inside the mountain. So those paintings go back to Europe, and within a hundred years, all the black Madonnas across Europe have these bell-shaped gowns. Turning them back into the mountain. Turning them back. Uh, wow! And we, and you know, if you don't scratch, you don't know. Yeah, people saw that. People in Europe even saw that, saw those images, and they thought, yeah, you know, that's something right about it. Something felt right about it. Like Our Lady is the Earth. Mm, right? Yeah, right, right. There's some part of, especially the Black Madonnas, they they remembered that. Some part of them remembered that she had been closely identified with the mountains. Yeah, to a large degree, it sounds like, and I, I mean, I got that from the book, is just a, a remembering of our, our spiritual DNA, which is really connected to the DNA of the earth, yeah. and that it's so old and so ancient. And we, we want to just sort of, again, kind of like I said about the earth and the moon, we want to just go, oh, I know what that is. That's Mary. That's, that's Mary. She was Jesus's mother, and this is what we believe about her, and put it in a box and stick it on a bookshelf. But it doesn't want to live there, you know? It doesn't she doesn't the lady doesn't want to live there on the bookshelf all contained like that. It's like that's not how nature works. Nature does not stay contained in boxes. And that's not how she works either. That's right. No way. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Well, I've enjoyed this a lot. I, I hope that people listen in this conversation. <laughs> I mean, we talked some about the book, but y'all shared so much more. And I just hope people listening to this will go seek the book out, honestly, and then, you know, take their own journey in it and explore it, you know. I think it would be a great experience for them, especially people, if they can just, uh, I've always suggest that people just look at their own beliefs, you know, and look at the way it's structured and just allow yourself every once in a while, especially even to my Catholic friends out there, just allow yourself to wander, think about the things you already believe and how fantastic and amazing they are. And then say, okay, is there further still to go, you know, outside that line I've drawn? Because it's already pretty fantastic. So can you go outside of the fantastic that you're already in to even more, you know, compounding fantastic? That's a beautiful mm, way to put that it. That is beautiful. 
Yeah, because I mean, we already all believe things. You know what I mean? I mean, I think about that a lot of times when I hear somebody, because I'm guilty when I hear someone talking about something that's not something I'm familiar with, or maybe I'm not initially comfortable with. I've learned to stop and say, okay, why am I not comfortable with it, first of all, and really explore that? Because most of the time, it's just, it's not really anything other than just being unfamiliar with their culture or where they've come from. Or maybe I don't even know, maybe I don't know their story. Maybe if I heard their story, I could connect to what they believe in. I think, you know, I think the storytelling is crucial that beyond ideology and politics and this and that, if we just listen to people's stories, a lot breaks open. And I'm going to bring it back to the rosary because the rosary tells the story of Mary Right. It tells a story of her having this kid and raising him, watching him die and then watching him come back to life. And it's a story that invites every single person to tell their story, to tell their story of joy, to talk about their sorrows and their life and to talk about their own miracles and magic. And it acknowledges that every single person we meet has a story to tell. Yeah, yeah. I do want to, on that note, one thing I wanted to say, and I I remember this because I was actually riding my bicycle when I got to that part of your book, and y'all were going through the traditional meditations, right? The traditional uh, reflections on the rosary, and I thought, oh, there that this I didn't realize that was going to be in the book because it was not, I guess I would say, not traditional. And so when you got to that part of the book, I thought, oh wow, this will actually have the traditional meditations in here. What I really loved for those people who are more into tra- the traditional rosary, I would say, is that you your reflections on those were were beautiful. They they I don't know it for me they brought me to those moments with a new new set of eyes to look upon those moments. Well, the mysteries are really uh, bottomless. They're like they're not answers. Yeah. They're not like dogma deliverers. Yeah. They are bottomless wells we can drink from again and again. And the very fact that we call the church calls the mysteries. Yeah. Their acknowledgement that, that these are these are in a direct line of descent from the ancient mystery religions that charted the the court the, the growth of plants and animals over the course of the solar year you know, through different stages of germination, growth, fruition, harvest, death, and rebirth, right? Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, that's one of the things, like I used to notice when I would say the rosary, some people in our community here where I live would say, uh, he descended to hell, you know, when they would read the part about Jesus. But then other translations would say, he descended to the land of the dead. And so I did a little scratching on that. I was like, why? Those are two things that bring your mind to two completely different places. And when I went down that hole of he descended to the land of the dead, I was fascinated because I said, now we're getting into that shamanic journey territory, you know. And Orpheus and, you know. Orpheus descends to the land. The hero always descends to the land of the dead. And Inanna and all heroes and heroines. Yeah. 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 Well, it took it out of the realm of like – God as a punisher, you know, because that word hell immediately has all these connotations with it. Not that it's not used in other cultures and religions, but specifically with Christianity, it's used as sort of a a ruler, you know, to swack you with and make you afraid. But when you that take it into the Buddhism that yeah. way too, Clark Zen Master Ted, everyone he was going to hell because Buddhism. <laughs> That's right. I didn't even know until then it was a Buddhist hell. That was the first I heard of it. <laughs> 
Oh, I know. I didn't even think about that either until I, I guess I was reading some Tibetan literature and I was like, okay, they're talking about hell and sins and layers. And, and I was like, okay, so there is this thought that there are realms and layers of suffering and all that. Well, you know, one thing, you know, I want to, uh, you know, just leave those listeners who may be Catholics with is that, you know, we we do basically pray a traditional rosary. I mean, the members of our group, you know, maybe, maybe you know, some members will tweak a word or two of a prayer, if, you know, if that is an obstacle for them in praying. We always say, you know, the old adage, pray as you can, not as you can't, and make it work for you. But, yeah, you know, yeah. as far as the mysteries and stuff goes, just about any of our members could sit down with their Catholic grandmother, right, and pray the rosary together. And yeah. it might be that, that our members might have a different understanding of what they were doing. But the form is, it's a very old form with a lot of secrets hidden in it. We always talk about the fact that the rosary is like a stowaway in the whole of the Catholic Church, a form of ancient goddess worship that has been smuggled down through the centuries as a stowaway yeah. into the modern age. But uh -huh. it's been preserved by the church. The church didn't always know what it was preserving or why it was preserving it, but it never threw it away. It might have tried to control it, but it never got rid of it. And so we have it today for that reason. Yeah, so that's those, beautiful. Those, you know, Catholic... Uh, uh, listeners, you know, who may be, you know, drifting more towards a conservative or normative sort of approach to Catholicism, you know, they can they can rest assured that that we are uh, making good use of this uh, of this ritual that has been carefully handed down from from ancient times. This episode's Fishing for Goodies Fishbowl sponsor is Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center in Sulphur, Louisiana. I don't know what you look for when you travel, but one of the things I look for when I'm putting together my itinerary is a unique museum or gallery in the city I'm traveling to. I do this almost every time I go to a new city, but if I'm being honest, I'm guilty of not always doing that very thing right here at home in Sulphur, Louisiana. That's really a shame because we have one of the most interesting, historically relevant, and culturally rich corners in any city in the country about two minutes from where I'm sitting right now. I'm talking about the Brimstone Museum and Henning Cultural Center. Have you ever really thought about why our city is named Sulphur? They've got a permanent exhibit on the history of the sulphur industry that answers that simple question and more. You really get a full scope of just how important the sulphur mining industry was to the development of Southwest Louisiana and the impact it had on the rest of the world. Yes, the rest of the world. On the same property, right next door to the museum, is the Henning Cultural Center, presenting some of the most interesting, modern, and culturally relevant local art shows I've ever seen. My dear friend Tom Trahan and the Brimstone Historical Society have really worked hard to give us this treasure, and it's a multifaceted jewel that I plan to take advantage of more often. You don't have to wonder what their hours are, or how to get there, or what shows are coming up. Just go to brimstonemuseum.org, like I did, and subscribe to their mailing list right there on the homepage. That's brimstonemuseum.org. Tom will make sure you start getting the announcements for each and every new show at the gallery. But you don't have to wait for the mail to arrive to enjoy this historical local treasure. You don't have to be guilty, like me, of overlooking a local wonder that conveniently sits next to the Grove, one of the most beautiful walking parks in southwest Louisiana. Drop in and say hi to Tom for me. Tour the museum and center, and make sure to tell Tom that you heard about Brimstone Museum on Find the Good News. Now, let's take that dive in the fishbowl. Just the 
we do have a part of the show. It's right at the tail end of the conversation. And we, we kind of took to calling it fishing for goodies because I had this big idea when I started this show that I had all these great questions I was going to ask everybody and I was going to structure the show. And then I realized that is not natural conversation. I, I prefer to just naturally sink in and really like get an energy going with people. But I had all these questions and I, I didn't want to throw them away. So I cut them all up into like Chinese fortune cookie little strips of paper. And I put them inside of this fish bowl right here with all these cool <laughs> stickers. We're and so, all right, cool. So what I'm going to do and what we do is that we draw three questions out of here and it's a mystery. There's like 400 questions in here, but I only draw three. And then uh, I ask them and we just have a conversation about it. See what happens. Sometimes it's a little uh, synchronistic and uh, mystical what comes out of here, you know, what for the guests. This one? <laughs> Let's see what we've got for you guys today. I'm going to go deep into the bottom here and draw three and we'll get going. Okay. Question number one. Okay. It's just kind of current events related. What news stories have affected you most and why? Mm. Well, I think the news that most I've had this experience lately where I'm looking for the news story I need and haven't been able to find it. And it's mm. what's really happening with the planet right now and a big macro level. Um, I, that seems to me the real story beyond politics, beyond everything. Um, if all of, if the oceans are dying, the insects are disappearing, and species are going extinct, it doesn't look so good for human beings. Mm -hmm. And we we've all known that a pandemic was coming. You know, everybody. You know, <laughs> we've been making movies about it. Been been writing every young adult dystopian fantasy novel has that as their theme. So my my the news stories I'm really paying attention to are the good news about the Earth that's happening at this very moment. Yeah. That somehow we're being shown new ways of being in the world where you might be able to collaborate more mm. with nature. Mm. Yeah. Well, I can I answer that question too. Yes, please. Right. Have a different answer. So I have a slightly <laughs> different answer. Uh, you know, um, every once in a while, our, our lady will actually, you know, point us in the direction of a story we haven't seen. Interesting. So not too long ago, she said, there's a YouTube video. Who knew she watched YouTube? But apparently she watched everything. <laughs> she says, there's a video that you can find of a guy cutting down a tree. And uh, but the tree begins to crack as he's as he's chainsawing it. And then it falls apart in unpredictable ways, and he's left to try to figure out where there's safety. And she said, I want you to find this video and watch it, because that's what is about to happen to your species. You're not going to know where it's safe. You're not going to where, know where it's safe to stand. And so I quickly found this video. It wasn't hard to find, right? Just typed in, you know, man sawing tree that falls unpredictably trying to get out of the way or something. I just, you know, typed in, you know how you do on YouTube, just type in a few key words. And yeah. the first thing that came up is this thing called a, quote, barber chair, which apparently is something that lumberjacks know. A barber chair happens when a tree splits when you're cutting it down. Instead of falling one direction, it falls multiple directions at once. Interesting. And it kills lumberjacks, right? Yeah. Because they 
get out of the way of it. So the video shows this guy realizing that he's got a barber chair. He lets go of the chainsaw, and you just see him in the video running back and forth as parts of the tree fall down. And you don't know at the end of the video whether he survived or not. Mm -hmm. And at the end of this, our lady said, after we'd watched it, our lady said, so the only way that you're going to survive what's coming is to hold my hand. Mm, wow. Because otherwise, you're not going to know where to stand. You can't figure it out on your own. You're yeah, it's, it's a cascade, right? I mean, yeah. it's, Cascade, it's, it's cascading a, catastrophes. It's a pandemic now. Then it's going to be climate change. This is going to be economic, economic collapse. collapse. It's going to be, or civil water. war, water. It's going to be, you don't Storms, know fires. which part of the tree is going to fall next, and you're not going to know where it's safe to stand. So, yeah, yeah. And, we're, and we're delusioned That's, because we're sitting around worrying about, you know, uh, shopping, right. you know, like freedom, right. the freedom to go shopping. And I had right. that reflection the other morning. I said, you know, I'm watching people in the news really get upset about their freedom to go shopping. And I'm like, God, it's a wheel within a wheel within a wheel. You know, that's such oh, not right. even close to the right. real rings that we need to be paying attention to. Those are just like some major small inner rings kind of like you said it's a macrocosm that's just so right. tiny in the center it's it's insignificant compared right. to the big cascade well, of things predict. you know we don't predict like you know all the preppers had their go bags ready turned out they weren't going anywhere and what they needed were bleach wipes i saw a very funny meme you know with a wife looking over her husband's go unpacked go bag Right, with his, with his survival knife and you know his flares and his tarps and stuff, and the, you know she says, "I sure hope you've got bleach wipes." Yeah. Well, I mean, there's so many people that think that think the end of the world is just going to be fought on the end of a, a spear or a gun, you know, and right. and it's so much subtler than that. I mean, right. it's it's basic right. survival. Really, yeah. I mean, we talk about this a lot in our family, you know, how granted, I mean, we're we're just like everyone else. I mean, we're still plugged in. We're still using electricity and, you know, we got combustion engines. I mean, to do what we got to do to get back and forth, I said, you know, make it for one is just us thinking about can we make our property work for us is something yeah. we keep talking about. Can we make the earth on our property start providing for us to some degree? Yeah. So we're not having to be so plugged in, you know, yeah. because that being plugged in and connected, it's just scary because you feel like, God, what if I unplug? What's that mean? But but there's bigger things going on that we aren't paying attention to. And that that could come, you know, it's something to really consider. That's right. That's interesting. That's a powerful question. I mean, especially with what's going on in the world today. Um, Wow. This is interesting. Okay. Things you want to say to insert person. So this question is almost like something that you would like to say to someone that maybe you haven't said. You don't even have to say who the person is. I have something I'd like to say to people in their 20s. Awesome. I want to hear this. First of all, I'm sorry. <laughs> nice. And I'm going to do what we can. But the good news, but how do we imagine the world continuing? 
How do we fight for the earth together? How do we fight together for the earth to win? Because if the earth wins, human beings will win. Truth. Truth. So please, can we figure out, young people, how we can do that together? Because that, I got my eyes on the, I have 20-year-old children. I know a lot of young people, and I know they feel so angry and so hopeless. Yeah. I just want to say, I get it. We've been thinking for a long time that we want to really work with you to yeah. think our way through what's yeah. coming. Yeah. Yeah. What you said. Yeah. That's wonderful. You know, I'm a I'm a parent. And oddly enough, I kind of I'm 45 years old, but I, I, I kind of started my conversation with you all telling you about 20 year old me. And yeah. that's an interesting thing to think about, you know, and I do think of that often. And, and a lot of it has to do with time and space. Sometimes I fold the pages in my mind and talk to that 20-year-old me, and I apologize a lot of times. I go, you know, if I had taken more, if I had really taken that seriously, what happened at 20, and not gotten sidetracked, you know, um, maybe I could have been a part of the solution earlier, younger, a couple of decades ago. But, you know, we walk the path we walk. But, again, I do, I understand that sentiment. So it's a wonderful message for young people. I, too, have children in that age zone, and, uh, I often think those thoughts, you know, I'm sorry that I didn't, for me, I think, sorry, I didn't work harder. Sorry, I didn't put my skills to use in this capacity instead of buying into just trying to uh, plug into the system and and survive and and try to convince you to survive and do the same thing. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's what I feel from the bottom of my heart. Powerful, powerful, powerful. Okay. So this is your third question. And I think I know what both of your answers going to be, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm alone. Who knows? Would you rather explore space or the ocean? Well, I would definitely rather uh, explore the ocean. <laughs> uh, there's there's beautiful things to see in space, but uh, you know I'm I'm pretty pretty earth oriented these days, you know, um, and uh, the sea is really. You know, it's interesting, Preeta often says that she always often thinks about the rosary in terms of the Our Fathers and the Hail Marys, mm-hmm. two basic prayers. The Our Fathers, the Our Fathers like a solar prayer, right? Sunshine, right? Yeah. It's yes. about our daily needs, our daily bread, right? It's about how we, how our daytime sort of behaviors. The Hail Mary is a, a darker, more uh, a darker prayer, right? Like it's a deep prayer that you dive deep into. It's a mantra you repeat over and over again. Like you talked about relaxing into it, sinking into it. It's like that ocean. And uh, Frida often says that, well, what do you get when you take that gold light from the sun and that blue light from the ocean, you combine them, you get the green of the planet, you get life, right? Those two things come together, those those solar and and well we sometimes call it lunar it really means earthly right that mm. sun and earth sun and water you bring those two things together and you get green life so but but the ocean is really the the source of that life that's where it all comes from our oceans are are dying right now and they're rising too they're coming yeah so, <laughs> true 
true. The source of life is the source source of fear <laughs> in some ways for society. It'll, yeah, you know, it, it'll also have to reboot us. So, and yeah. I would just I would just add that the whole idea of up, up and away. If we can take a rocket ship to the moon, or a rocket ship to Mars, or Elon Musk is going to build us a new planet or somewhere, or and, we can upload our consciousness into the cloud. <laughs> right, right. Same All of this is a desire right. to be done with the Earth and to be yeah. done. With bodies right yeah and the very first thing i'll end is what our lady said to the first teaching she gave us on the rosary is she said is my body is the body of the earth your body is one with that body yeah what cause could there be for fear yeah yeah you know it, it reminds me I, I i think the book i just finished i think the title was in love with the world yeah. i don't know if y'all Man, he when he talked about his near-death experience, he, he talked about feeling the elements of his body begin to separate, you know, and want to rejoin with the earth as his mind yeah. was freed from that. And I, I told my wife after I read just that section in the book, I stopped for a little while. I said, that's something to really meditate on. I mean, you, we rise up out of this earth. All human beings that have ever walked this earth have returned to it. And risen, and we rise up out of that. That's yeah. fascinating. That is, and become conscious and can see and feel. Yeah. And then we can jump up off the ground, like you know, a tree has roots. <laughs> it's connected, but I can like jump up off the ground and still be autonomous and and living and conscious and free. And I'm not going to fall on the, uh, you know down and and turn into a twig. That's fascinating to me. That vision or dream or vision that you have, I'm going to remember that for a long time because I think there's a lot of wisdom in it. That giant, you know, Our Lady of Sorrows, I mean, the figure you're describing sounds to me like Our Lady of Sorrows, and she is vast and massive, like as big as our salt, you know, the salt, her salt tears are like her oceans now. But she lifts you up and you feel yourself being uprooted, but you're not really uprooted. You're just being given the broader, bigger view of things, right? And we yeah. desperately need that. We need to know where we belong, which is with our roots and in, in our mother, right? Nurtured yeah. by her, supported by her, loved by her, protected by her, guided by her, fed by her. We also, we, we need just enough of that sort of transcendent view. We need to let her lift us up, right? Assume us into the heavens briefly, through praying the rosary is a good way to do it, to get the broad view and to see what's really going on around us, you know. That's interesting. I, it gives me a good visual. I mean, I'm going to do this maybe the next time I pray the rosary uh, is to think of it as um, vines almost, like reaching uh-huh. down and, right. and, you know, exactly. into the earth. Very wonderful. I love Very that. Much. I like that. Okay. That's beautiful. Lift it up so you can look around. In fact, there's a prayer that we do in the morning. It's the prayer to Our Lady of Mount Carmel, and it begins, um, what is it? Oh, most beautiful flower of Mount Carmel. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fruitful vine, that yeah. she, that the mother is a fruitful vine climbing yeah. up and yeah. yeah, that is. That vine imagery is amazing. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. God, so beautiful. I could talk to you guys so much, honestly. <laughs> I mean, really, you know, it's one of those things. I always get that experience, you know, with certain guests where I'm like, man, I, there's so much to talk about. And I, I'm really honestly, there's so much I haven't shared. And I'm sure there's so much y'all haven't shared. And uh, it's just dynamic. I love that. I hope that listeners, I always, I don't know why, but in this conversation, I just hope that 
and it's strange, but I guess it's because maybe because of where I live and the people I'm surrounded by, I hope that my Catholic friends t- can appreciate this conversation deeply and not just turn it off. Do you know what I mean? I don't know why I have that worry, and maybe it's not a worry. It's just a hope. It's not a worry. It's a hope. I just hope that because there's so much uh, more to it's not diminishing anything. It's just, to me, expanding and brightening and, and spreading it out even it's further. learning about the church's own traditions. And before the Reformation, before there was this need to compete with Protestantism, yeah. there was a lot of richness. And yeah. it's worth looking into your own ethnic heritage, you know, whether it's Italian or Irish or Spanish or whatever it is, there, because there were a lot of wonderful devotions and traditions. Yeah. A lot of what we call conservative Catholicism these days is trying to Protestantize itself. Mm. I can and, see that. Yeah, I see what you mean. And, you know, let's make it more mainstream and Protestant and, and more less. more based on text, less based on folklore, you know, more about, you know, Jesus and the Bible and less about the saints and, and, and the mother uh, and the mother. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, you know, again, y'all talked about the column of saints in your book and I may have brought it up earlier, but that was I, I connected with that because to me, the saints always pointed the way to being another Christ, you know, and that was a fascinating concept to me that, oh, you this, they're pointing the way not just for you to worship something, but for you to become something. Yeah, right. That's, that's, yeah, right. that's a that's a fascinating idea. I could go off on that as a whole nother tangent. I do have <laughs> one last about that one, Oren. <laughs> <laughs> I have one more question and it's on the back of this coffee mug and I'm going to send you guys these. This is the find the good news coffee mug. Uh Send them to each of the guests. But I put the last question on there, and it's, did anything good happen today? I I know that seems like a simple question, but I realized a couple of years ago that I was coming home from my job, and I'd walk in the house, and I'd say, so how was your day or what happened today? And I realized by saying, how was your day? I noticed it was leading people to have a choice in the matter. <laughs> they would say, <laughs> oh, I'm going to just tell you about everything in my day, and most of the time we we – tend to focus on these bad things. Oh, my teacher did this, or, oh, I had so much work, and, oh, you know, you share all these little war stories. And so I I thought, what if I just change that question just a little bit? I come home and I'll say, did anything good happen today? And it changed the nature of our conversations. We started sitting around and and counting our blessings and being more grateful. And so I I now ask that of my guests, you know, to to think that way at the very end of the show. So did anything good happen to you guys today? Well, apart from this wonderful show. I was going to say, this kind of, you know, we wrote our book because we wanted, we wanted to talk with like, to share this with other people and have conversations and pray the rosary with people. So to be able to have this conversation with you about the rosary is a is an answer to a prayer. It really is. It really uh, is. Likewise, likewise. Your your book's a blessing, honestly. But you must get that a lot. So I will tell you, I saw a green warbler this morning. Did you? <laughs> we have a bird feeder, actually three bird feeders, right outside our bedroom window. We have a sliding glass French doors, right? So yeah. we're able to look out. And uh, so we've been, you know, just... I guess one of the sort of silver linings of this pandemic, we're spending more time at home than usual. I mean, we work at home, so we're always at home, but we're even more at home now, has been, you know, we just decided we're going to put up more bird feeders, right? Yeah. We're gonna have so many bird- We have got 
so many different birds and birds we've never seen before that for whatever reason have just you know, um, they hear that the strands have put out three bird feeders and the word gets around <laughs> and Baltimore Orioles show up and birds we haven't seen in years. But I haven't seen a green warbler, I think, in probably 40 years. Isn't and that something? This morning, right there at the feeder, and I was looking at it and I was just so stunned for a moment, I just couldn't even speak. And That's then I, beautiful. And then, gone, and then it was gone. You know, by the time I found the words to say Perdita, a green warbler, it had already flown. <laughs> but I saw it. <laughs> I can connect with you guys on that because I, I too, love to watch. You know, I told you about our tree we call Mother. We have bird feeders hanging from her. They drip almost. And uh, I love to sit and watch the birds. In fact, that's my Sunday morning kind of – I don't really go to mass or church or anything anymore, but that's where I go to uh, – I, to to pray and to contemplate and yeah I I agree it's like you watch these birds and they come in all these different colors and every once in a while you'll get that one that you haven't seen before in a long time and I, it's exactly the same thing I'll go I need to go get my wife because she's not out here right now I need to show her this bird and by the time I even have the thought it's flittered away but it would it's every once in a while you get those ones that you're like wow isn't that something fascinating it's like I heard someone say one time you can't imagine a new color. And I was like, huh, that was something to really think about. And I, I, I tried to imagine a new color, and I was like, no, you can't. <laughs> but seeing <laughs> – <laughs> you, know, you can't do that. But it was like it kind of cracks your brain open enough. And sometimes seeing a new bird is that way. Yeah. It's like, oh, I couldn't imagine you, you know, but you're, here you are. You know, some, some this yeah. designed beautiful thing that I couldn't imagine. It's like a miracle. And, yeah. you know, the, the one thing I'll say is Our Lady said the reason you pray rosaries is you start growing miracles in the world. It's like a hand uh, of seeds for growing miracles. Oh, I love that. I love that visual. The knots or the beads being seeds in your hand, you know, tossing them out into the ether there. That, that's Jack, beautiful. That's beanstalk. You got to throw them out the window, and the next thing you know, that vine you were talking about is growing <laughs> to heaven. Yeah. What a wonderful talk. Guys, uh, Perdita Finn. Clark Strand, both both authors that have just got so much work out there. I mean, you know, you could pick any of their works and, and really enjoy it. But I'm going to suggest, if you are unfamiliar, starting with The Way of the Rose. Where, where Where's the best place for people to buy your book or just experience? Well, your local independent bookstore, we want to put a call in for, please. A lot of them are doing curbside pickup. Yeah. Our local bookstore... Yep. The Golden Notebook in Woodstock, New York. If you want an autographed copy, you can look it up on hey. You I'll can put a link there to their website. That's great. Yeah. And um, there is the great behemoth that does, you know. There is, <laughs> there is always the great, the great river of, uh, <laughs> you know, cardboard boxes, Amazon, and they will yeah. serve <laughs> but there are independent bookstores, and now's a great time to find one yeah. and order a book from them. That's right. Yeah, love that. I'll put a link to that bookstore in there. You that bet. Be the, that's, where, that's where I'll point everybody, and I'll make sure they know that you encourage that. Good. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Lauren. What a pleasure. Thanks for listening to my Beacon Series conversation with Clark Strand and Perdita Finn. If you'd like to experience their book, The Way of the Rose, The Radical Path of the Divine Feminine Hidden in the Rosary, make sure to visit the links in the show notes. If you found something of use in this conversation, consider helping me spread the good news by supporting Find the Good News at patreon.com slash findthegoodnews. I thank you for pressing play 
and for syncing up with this good news signal.